podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, good evening and welcome to the Chills. Here we are again. Oh, it seems like it's been so long since we did one of these podcasts. We've had the international breaks and so much else has been happening. Andy, Mr. Andy Saunders, you're here. How are you and how's the last couple of weeks been for you? Yeah, well, I hate the international break. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm well known for saying now uh, it's a pointless exercise. So I'm very glad that we've got some proper football back. Yes, indeed. And to talk about proper football, uh, it's one of our favourite authors who's only just gone and released another book. It's Mr. Tim Rolls, and he's just written Stamford Bridge is Falling Down. Tim, how are you? I'm extremely well, Kerry. Thanks very much. Good, good, good. Now, now look, the one thing about this, uh, this international break is in that time, your book appears. And here we are back with football and back with a book to read. Um, and for me, it's quite fantastic. I've just been reading and starting it off at the moment. And it starts at the year that basically I started supporting Chelsea and going there. And that whole period that you talk about, which we'll get you to mention in a minute, was the years I had my first season ticket. So please, Tim, would you like to give us a little pricey of what your book is all about? Yeah, happily, yeah. It, it starts really the um, with the day Chelsea won the Cup Winners' Cup in Athens. And it ends four years later when Chelsea had been relegated. And what it looks at is why that happened. And it, it happened because of um, players falling out with the manager, Dave Sexton, the, the, the club spending money they hadn't got on a stand they arguably didn't need. And you ended up with a situation where the manager left, key players left, and the club, the club got relegated and were massively in debt. And all of this potentially was avoidable, but it all happened. Everyone had the best of intentions, and the club went from being arguably one of the best-run clubs in England to arguably the worst-run club in England inside four years. So, in effect, I just want everyone to know who doesn't know what you're talking about, um, the years we're talking about are 71 to 75, 1971 yeah. to 1975. Um, and do, do you think, I know, Andy, you've bought it as well, and you're going away on holiday and you're taking it away to read. Um, how are you looking forward to it? Well, I'm looking forward to it. I, obviously, I'm considerably younger than you. Uh, so in 1971, I was six years old. So although I had a, you know, sort of an interest in Chelsea at that point, I wasn't a, a, a diehard fan by that point. So it, it's a bit of a history book for me in that sense. I didn't really live through that period in the same way that maybe some other people did. So I'm very interested in sort of looking at what I know will be a forensic uh, examination of, of that period because I've read Tim's other books, uh, his Dynamos and Devils book. Um, and, you know, I know that the way you write, Tim, is to really get get below the surface of this subject and, and find out the whys and wherefores of it. That, yeah. Sorry, Tim. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, I mean, what I did basically was the same I did with the Doherty book, which was just spend a lot of time in the British Library going through newspapers and magazines and books and just pulling together a narrative both on the pitch and off the pitch. And what's interesting with this one is that far more people who I know watched the team in the early 70s. I think the mid-60s 
was probably a bit old for, for an awful lot of people. But people, I'm 62, people my age, a lot of them were watching Chelsea regularly, so they can relate to it. So there's, bit, there's games they remember, but people, people's first matches or the first mm. time they travelled away, what have you. So it becomes more, more relevant for a lot of people, I think. And I think what it's done is it's reminded people of just how far we fell and how quickly. And do you think that there's, there's any relevance to what's been happening today? Because, in effect, we won't go too much into the, the whole historical sense of it, but um, this was a club that had everything and then tried to advance and it fell apart. And then once it had fallen apart and things had gone wrong, had to come and examine the youth players that they had at the club. So do you see a relevance to what's been going on today? It's different, but same sort of principles. It's, it's similar principles in that I think then the club had sold their, arguably their, their best players, Peter Osgood, David Webb and Alan Hudson. It's different now that we have sold Hazard. And we were forced to play the young players then because we literally had no money. We didn't buy any players between 1974 and 1978. It, it, it is different now, but the transfer ban means we've had to play youngsters. So, there, you know, there are parallels. I think we're starting from a stronger position. The squad is a lot stronger now than it was when we were relegated in, uh, in, in 1975. But there are parallels, yeah. And I suppose, Andy, I mean, for you, when you... It'd be really interesting to see how you respond to the book because... You know, as you said, uh, you're a whippersnapper and I'm a few years older than you. For me, when he start, when when Tim starts talking about Keith Weller and, and buying him and 18 months later having to sell him, even though he'd been our top scorer, I think, um, you know, there, there was something that just tore, tore at me and, and made me remember, oh, my God, I used to all of the season year before for Leicester where he he had this incredible charge up the pitch if I remember and then smashed it into the top corner um and then we bought him and it was one of those things he was one of the first players that I started to understand as a kid what buying players from another club meant because it being my first year I'd just seen these players at Chelsea and didn't realize that you could get players from other clubs so it's 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 interesting how it takes us back time but also that makes you remember you know football is still the same game that it's always been isn't it Andy yeah 100 percent. and what's interesting about that time period for me is in 1970 I was five years old and I come from a West Ham family and I've said this before all my family are West Ham and I kind of was captivated by Chelsea I think because they were blue as the colour was being used in the SO adverts. Obviously, you had that Kings of the Kings Road aura about Chelsea at the 1970 Cup final. So there was an element of glory hunting uh, to a degree. And, and I had a couple of friends at school that were Chelsea fans. And I was kind of made up that I was going to be a Chelsea fan when I was five years old. And it sort of broke my dad's heart and my my uncle's heart. And, and today there's still this kind of division in the family. I'm very much the blue sheep of the family um, and, and, and always have been. So it's a sort of time of, I don't really remember it that well, but it was that period that kind of got me into Chelsea almost by osmosis. Yeah. I, I think that's what happens, isn't it? You, it's very hard to pinpoint the moment that, that you become a Chelsea fan. I mean, I remember, you know, going in 1969 in the FA Cup winning season to Chelsea for the first time and, and the match got snowed off 
if I remember, it was against Man City. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget that that misery of, I was going to see my first football game and then suddenly you couldn't go. And then I can't quite remember what was the first game I saw, but it was a, a few weeks later. But there is something quite mystical and magical about how we start supporting a club. I mean, mm. Tim, do, Tim, do you do you remember your first moment of when you found you were a Chelsea fan? Well, I first went in um, September 67 when I was 10 because a guy from school, his dad ran coaches to Chelsea. But I didn't start going regularly and actually until um, until I left school and I found people to go. Um, so I was sort of 18 before I became a sort of became a diehard, if you like. Um, but I remember I remember my first game. My dad used to take us to Chelsea Man United when I was sort of 10, 11, 12. Not because he wanted to watch Chelsea, but because he wanted to watch George Best, to be honest. But um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a more gradual thing with me. I, you know, I think when I started going in 1976, it really, you know, I suddenly started doing away games as well. And the people I went with then are the people I go with now. So we've been going for 40, 43 years. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, I, I remember, you know, uh, going in 1970 and then my father turning turning up at the beginning of the next season and said, right, now we better get used to our seats. And I said, what do you mean? And he'd bought us two season tickets for what was then the West Stand. And we had those season tickets from 1971 through to 1978. So, yeah, I mean, I started off just full of joy going, wow, this is amazing. This support in one of the best teams in the land. We're winning stuff. And then I'll never forget that time when suddenly you looked over and the old East Stand was gone and there was nothing there apart from a couple of little sheds by the touchline. And you thought, this is strange. And it never seemed to get better from right. that moment on. Well, I think when did we point... first start going to games, Kerry? You and Sorry? me. Uh, has to have been... Well, Late I'm 80s? To think... It's got to be late, yeah, because we met just before all the brute pop sort of thing. Because you were still at Roadrunner, weren't you? Mm. Uh, and doing which, um, heavy uh, metal. yeah, you 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 were so heavy metal it was ridiculous. You know, you had hair down to your waist. And well, it's not true. But yes, <laughs> yeah. nothing changed then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's right. You were, you were doing the, the metal stuff and that was before you'd gone to creation and things. So yeah, it must've been about 88, 89, I would have thought, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, there's something wonderful about going with people regularly because it, it, it it's a bond that you, that, that, that's a strangest thing that no matter what happens in your day, you know, you know, you can phone one of your friends up that you go with all the time and just have a chat about it. And mm. plus, but by the sounds of it, Tim, that's the same for you in the fact that you're still going with people you went to first off. Yeah, yeah I mean, we were. I was 19. They were sort of 19, 20. Yeah, we, we got old together, basically. And we started off in the shed. Then we moved, when the shed shut, we moved to the old West Stand for three years. And then that shut, Matthew Harding Upper. And we've been in the same seats ever since. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a sort of life sentence, if you like. It is very much a life sentence. It's a pretty good one at this moment in time, though. And I, I suppose, you know, we, we can come back and chat about this a bit more in a sec. But I, I guess we should have well, a quick chat. Yeah, just a little bit about the book, because I bought the book from the stall, the CFG UK stall, which is opposite the entrance to the Tube on Fulham Broadway uh, on Saturday. 
£20, money well spent, um, nicely signed by you. Um, so who publishes it? Where can you get it? All that kind of stuff. Right, it's published by Gate 17 Publications, which is Mark Worrell, who are a number of the listeners I suspect will know, I will know of. Yeah, and, and good evening, Mark. You <laughs> can either get it uh, from the stall or, or on Amazon. You can get the, the paperback and the ebook on Amazon. Uh, and it's currently number two in the charts, in the Amazon Chelsea charts, which is probably not quite as grand as it sounds, but it's 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 on there and it, it's up and available. Uh, and the hardback is available from the uh, yeah the CFC UK stall. And if anyone wants hardback and they can't get to the stall, then just email me at tjrolls at hotmail.com. We can sort something out. Good. Excellent. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, to reading it. Yeah, and I, I think I'll probably get a hardback copy as well, actually, because I, I felt really guilty uh, at how cheap the Kindle version is on Amazon. I mean, maybe you don't want me to mention that. No, no, please do. Please do. Well, it's it's ridiculous. You can buy the Kindle version for £3.95. Yep. That's crazy. I, you know, I, I wanted to buy it twice. You <laughs> yeah. Know? But, uh, but yeah. <laughs> I don't get a huge cut of that. <laughs> no, that's what I mean. That's why I didn't know whether you wanted me to tell no, people. No, no, no. I think there's there's people who, you know, maybe a younger generation of mine who only buy stuff on Kindle. No, that's fine. I mean, it's good that it's there. It, the more people read it, the better. You know, you don't write these books to make money, which is just as well. But you do write them hoping that people will read them. So, so no, that's fine. Well, I have the same attitude I have with Spotify in the fact that if I buy uh, something on on the Kindle. Um, and I like it, I then want to have the physical copy of it. So um, it's same with Spotify. If I hear something I like, I want to buy it to own it as well. So That's because um, you're an old man. Yeah, exactly. But it also means that I'm spending even more money with Tim than anyone else. Absolutely. And you're, <laughs> I'm very grateful, Kerry. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Well, I, I'm loving it. You know, I kind of nearly missed doing the podcast because I was I was reading this and um, I'm thinking of all the people that are going to appear in in this story, which unfolded before my very eyes. So I, I, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, OK, so uh, international breaks. Quite a few of our boys went away and had games here, there and everywhere. I, I guess one of the most upsetting things about internationals and this will be one for Andy to have a little carp about, is how sometimes the international sides don't look after players well. Visa yeah, well we had, N'Golo Kante. Yeah, we had Kante obviously getting injured in the warm-up uh, for France. Um, you know, it's a season that's been plagued by injuries for N'Golo. Um, and they're, they're niggling ones as well, which is worrying. He can't quite get over them and string a run of games together. He's such a hugely important player for us. It was great that we got a win against Newcastle, but I genuinely think that when N'Golo's in the team, uh, if not twice the team, we're certainly a significantly improved uh, team with him because he allows other players to, to to create and express themselves. So, yeah, that was really irritating. Obviously, Kovacic picked up a knock as well, but he came on in the 43rd minute of the game and seemed to be okay. But it is annoying when players go away on international break and they come back with a knock, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, uh, how do you feel about it, Tim? It, it is frustrating, isn't it? Especially seeing as Chelsea apparently have flagged it up and there's a little bit of a, a, a contretemps between uh, Frank and Didier Deschamps, an ex-Chelsea player. Well, I mean, it, it, it is extremely frustrating 
meeting, but you can sort of see it from the uh, international manager's point of view because I suspect they've had more pulled over their eyes in the past by, by coaches, so they want to get the players. But the problem is the, the international break is just stop, start, stop, start, you know, right up till the end of November. This and other players seem to get injured when they're supposedly being looked after by medical staff of the national teams who you would hope were at least as good as the club ones. I think that this may be, uh, Andy, to do with, they all have different practices. So the way we may set out a day for training and fitness and what have you will not be the same as the way they do it internationally. Yeah, possibly. I just think it's unlucky. And Golo has had injuries this season, you know, and I don't think he's probably fully recovered. We know that when he comes on, he can't give anything less than 100%. So he's always going to be pushing his body to the limits. Um, I just think it's unfortunate. I don't think it's necessarily training or medical practitioners. I just think it's unlucky. And and it's just irritating that it happens when he's not within our within the kind of confines of our club. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of, I'm just not a big fan of international football generally. <laughs> don't get me started. Okay. But surely that might change a bit when it looks as though ultimately if things go right, Chelsea will have possibly seven players in the England lineup eventually. Don't care. <laughs> I want I want them to play for Chelsea. I'm only interested in Chelsea. I'm club over country, hundred uh, percent. What about you, Tim? Or oh, I'm slightly different. I've been watching England on and off since the early seventies. Uh, I do. I've watched England playing four World Cups, so I'm I'm keen. I do support the country as well, not as much as Chelsea. Chelsea first. And if we can get a few players in the England squad next summer, then fantastic. But, you know, my concern is, is burnout. If we had seven players in the England team, well, I don't think we will. But even if we had five or six, they don't get the break that they need that summer. So we would come into the start of next season, half the team would be exhausted, which is a concern. Yeah, that's true. Well, look, talking I, about... Can I, just say, can I just clarify my England comments as well? Because... It's important to note that I loved Euro 96 and I loved the previous World Cups. And, you know, like Tim, I've been following England since I was a kid, you know, and all the World Cups and all that kind of stuff. And love Euro 96 and Italia 90. And, and I started to sort of wane a little bit from them. But what really, really put me off England, and I've said this publicly before, is when England fans started booing Frank Lampard and John Terry and Ashley Cole. And, you know, when that happened, I just thought, I can't stand next to these people. These people don't represent me. I can't. I can't tolerate people booing Chelsea players who purport to be England fans. I'm not having it. And and ever since then, I've had a, a sort of an ambivalent relationship with the England team. I get mildly excited around the major tournaments, and I'll probably get more excited if there's Chelsea players in it. But as I say, since that point, since they started booing Chelsea players, I can't be doing with it. But it's changed slightly. That used to be these fanboys that would cheer. Jack Wilshire and Theo Wil- Walcott, which gives you some idea who those were. And they were booing Chelsea players. But, of course, those players aren't in the team now. The last five or six England games I've been to, I've not noticed any England player getting booed. So I think it maybe has changed slightly. Hmm. Fair enough. Well, look, we're, we're going to uh, talk about the present-day Chelsea side in just a moment uh, and after this break. Think you know everything about Frank Sinatra? Then think again. Award-winning Richard Shelton brings Frank Sinatra's story and his iconic songs to life in a new show at Wilton's Music Hall in London, October the 22nd, 
through to November the 2nd. Go to wiltons.org.uk and grab your tickets now. Shut down in May. And we're back. So, yeah, right, let's get up to speed with Chelsea stuff. So it was Newcastle was our return to football from the international break. Um, Newcastle, of course, had had a, a good result against Manchester United in their last game. And you kind of knew that they would come with a plan to put everyone behind the ball. Were you viewing this game with a bit of trepidation, Andy? Not really, no. I, I honestly thought this would be a, a game that we could really show what we were made of. Um, I was quite slightly surprised to see Ross Barkley in the starting lineup ahead of Kovacic, but obviously, you know, Kovacic had picked up a knock, but he was on the bench, so it was a bit odd. Ironically, Barkley went off after 43 minutes with a knock, and Kovacic came on. So, no, I didn't. There wasn't any trepidation. I wasn't. I wasn't going in there cocky, but I felt this was a game that we could and we should win. But it, it did turn out to be quite a, especially the first half. I mean, what, what I loved was the way we stuck at it. But that first half was quite dour. Um, how did you view the game and how it unfolded, Tim? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The first half was was dour. But as Andy said, you know, we kept going. That was the important thing. We didn't panic. We didn't start playing long balls for the sake of it. We, we stuck with it. And, and, you know, we got the result. I, I, I was hoping we'd win more comfortably. But they... They were quite resolute at the back. I mean, I guess that's what Steve Bruce is probably quite good at. And you think that maybe they will do enough of that through the season to stay up. But the important thing was that we got three points and, you know, and we move on. And in a weekend when a number of our supposed rivals seemingly failed to get three points, that's got to be a good thing. Yeah, I think I think that's true. It was It was a lovely week for us this week because an awful lot of strange results happened everywhere. You know, the, the, the saddest was that Delhi Ali's shoulder didn't count as his hand, uh, sadly. Um, otherwise, Tottenham would have lost as well. But, well, uh, no, it was the penalty, mate. Jesus. I mean, the, you know, the penalty oh. they didn't get on VAR. Yeah. That's what, that was unbelievable. Well, okay. Well, with the, this sets up another question. It is VAR, in principle, is brilliant. But how the hell... Is it being handled so incorrectly for so many major decisions? I mean, your thoughts on that, Tim? Well, I think that the it's been there's mistakes being made by by referees, but also the communication in the ground. That's the thing that really gets me. The fact that the forty thousand people in the ground know less that's going on than the TV viewers. They don't seem to use this screen by the side of the pitch at all. So either don't have it or, or, or use it. It just seems completely anomalous. And I don't know any match-going fan who thinks, as it stands, that VAR is working well. Not one. No, I, I think some teams have gone, well, we've just been on the great end of a, a result there with VAR. But often it's dubious. And, and also... The, the way it seems to be trying to back the referee in contentious situations, especially penalties, is, is really very frustrating. Penalties seems to be the biggest area where they're choosing not to overrule the, the referee. It's almost like saying, hey, VAR says it's not a penalty, so therefore it isn't one. And I, I think they've got to realise that they do have to undermine the referees if they're getting it wrong, don't they, Andy? 
Well, I think Tim made a point there about the pitch side screens. That, that for me, is the key. What's not happening is the VAR officials sitting remotely and not directing the referees to the pitch side screens. And I think that, for example, that, that Watford-Tottenham situation where Delafaya was brought down um, on Saturday – uh, it was Saturday or Sunday, Saturday, I think. Um, he, yeah. uh, if, if the referee had gone over to the pitch side screen and watched that, there's, you know, a 99% chance he would have overturned that and given the penalty. Um, but if you don't use those screens and the people in the remote positions are just saying, well, it's not a clear and obvious error, so we're going to, you know, not overturn it. We're going to back the referee and not give the, the referee an opportunity to see it. I don't see how it can work. In rugby, with the TMO, um, you know, the, the referee is able to look at the screen and actually look at the incident and make a decision. Um, so I think the referee has to have sight of the incident to make a proper decision. That's, what, that's where VAR will work, I think. But don't, I mean, it's all don't, right. It's all right in the remote situation on the offsides because the because the officials have the technology to look at the offsides. But in a situation in the penalty situation, I think the referees have got to look at the pitch side screens. Yeah, but the the problem is, isn't there some directive where the the referees have said they will not use the pitch side screens? That's what I think they've been saying, isn't it? Well, Tim? that's stupid, and they need oh, to. Yeah, it is. Well, either don't have them or use them, but they seem to be there, but 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 not being used. I don't think anyone's quite clear what, what the directives are on these things. And I think there is a, a massive disconnect between the people at Stockley and the people who make the rules and, and the supporters in the ground. And to be honest, the players and the, and the, the staff of the, the Premier League clubs, it, it, it's not working properly at the moment. Uh, the, one, no. the one time I did see the music was in the Valencia game at the bridge where um, the referee used it then, didn't he? To, to, yeah. um, to do, it's the only time I've seen it used. Yeah, we've been we've been lucky at home. We haven't had the uh, seat ripping moments of something. Being no, but I'm talking about the referee actually going and looking at the pitch side. Yeah, but that's screens. a European game. It, yeah, that, that's, that's what, what I'm I mean. saying. Yeah. European referees are going straight away to the side if they can mm. to go and see for themselves. We have a principle. Apparently, I heard this is what they've decided amongst themselves that they will not go to the side of the pitch. And what so, reason did they give for that? I have no idea, but that, that's what I've heard. Whether it's true or not, I'd like to find out. Because at the moment, it, it's almost like then the referee doesn't have to take responsibility for a bad decision. I think it's a bit of an ego thing where they go, oh gosh, I got that wrong, I'll have to overturn it. Whereas actually, you look at rugby referees, they go, well, thank you, technology, for pointing this out. I've made a mistake. Let's get on with it. Yeah, and cricket, I, I, with, you know, cricket, yeah. cricket has the same thing with um, Hawkeye and all that kind of stuff. So tennis, yeah. you know, they all use it. Yeah, well, I think people like Mike Dean, etc., have huge egos and don't want to admit they've done something wrong. But uh, he's another story, and you could do a podcast just about him. Um, Castle game. That second half, we came out. We seem to. I, I'd like to talk. There's a very interesting article by Karen Carney um, on the BBC website today, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I think, uh, where she talked about William and how William is starting to really take on the mantle as the senior creative player and is driving forward with the ball. Also, the way he runs across the box, inviting fouls and tackles, and how he's he's really blossoming and flourishing out of the loss of Hazard. It's allowing him to be a really top player. How do you, how do you feel about that, Tim? Well, I think, I think you're right. And it's interesting because he, he is definitely seems to be in the ascendancy. He is, if you like, the main man because, you know, he's got the experience. So he's more likely to have the consistency. Whereas if you take Pedro, he seems to be 
increasingly in the background. And, and, and fair play to William for, for stepping up because Mount isn't going to have the consistency. You know, hudson Adore is not. They're, they're young. They're going to have games where it doesn't quite work. For, but in the absence of Hazard, we needed someone to do that, that driving, that, that leading us. And he seems to be doing it. And, and fantastic, you know. Yeah, what do you think, Andy? Um, I, I, I love the way that William will drive at defences because there's, there's nothing they, they hate more than somebody running directly in a, in a line towards you. I think William's been one of the most discussed players on this podcast in the entire history that we've been doing it. And I think that what, what's interesting about William is we've always said that he's got an incredible engine, that he often sets the tempo of a game, that his energy and his ability to cover blades of grass in a game is astonishing um you know and that if he has any kind of weakness to his game it's potentially his final products or his work work in the final third but i often think as well about william that he's a player that needs to be loved and and feel loved um and the, the problems that he had under conte um and to a degree under sari were about slightly being sidelined um and and not feeling like he was you know, part of the overall engine of the team. And I think that Frank has brought him really close and said to him, I need you to go out there and be a senior player. We've got a very young team. I need you as an experienced pro to go out there and set the tone for this game. And I think he's really grabbed that with both hands and gone out there and, and carved out a seniority in that team that perhaps he he didn't have before. I think you're right. And I, I think what's interesting is because he started the season later than everyone, because he had injuries, came back late and what yeah, happened. His first game, he was terrible, wasn't he? He really was. But, <laughs> I, but it was interesting because Pedro was the senior pro at the start and he hasn't quite taken the, that sort of uh, mantle in the same way that William has. William seems to be running back even more than he ever used to. He seems to be enjoying playing with Mason Mount and with Hudson Adoy. He seems to be happy to feed him and Hudson Adoy were were switching passes across the pitch uh, on Saturday against Newcastle, and it was fantastic to see. He, you just feel as though he's imparting something to these youngsters, and he's enjoying seeing their responses to it. So, yeah, for me, I, I think I think it's really interesting. The the other person who seems to have come back into the fold, which is thanks to an injury, is Alonso. And Alonso, I mean, he got so much stick from the Newcastle fans at the weekend for being an ex-Sunderland player. So how fitting was it that he scored? And actually is looking pretty useful again, Tim. He is looking useful. I still have concerns about his, him defensively, and we'll be interested to see with some of the games coming up how he does. But no, fair play to him. He's come in, he's grabbed his chance. And it was, it was so important that we scored on Saturday. And it must have been great for him, given the flack he was getting from the, uh, the 2,800 Geordies at the, the other end. So, I mean, and it's good to have this in the squad. You, we need this. We can't have it where if Emerson's out, we've, we've got a weakness. At the moment, we don't appear to have, have many weaknesses. I think, you know, we have got City coming up in a few weeks away. We've got Arsenal and Spurs coming up in December. So we have got some tough games. But at the moment, it's all looking pretty good. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's right. I mean, the, the other person who seems to make a difference every time he appears this season is Kovacic. And and in a way, I think he was the real match turner against Newcastle. How do you think about that, Andy? Well, I think it's true. I think he, he came on and the first half was really moribund. We made a lot of sloppy errors in the first half. The, the passing wasn't sharp. We gave the ball away a lot. 
we put ourselves into trouble. You know, there's players trying to pass out from the back that aren't capable of doing so. I'm looking at you, Kurt Zuma. You know, Kurt Zuma, I thought, had a brilliant game, but he's not a footballer in inverted commas in the sense that I don't think he's suited to playing it out from the back. You know, Tamore, you know, has a... I think I said on social media, it looks like he has a clangor, a game in him at the moment, which is, you know, which is fine. He's young and he's learning. So there's there's errors and, and mistakes on the pitch. Mason Mount gave the ball away a little bit. We just didn't feel like it was clicking. There wasn't confidence in the passing. You know, Tim mentioned the fact that they were very resolute at the back and very well organised. And all those things led, led it to being quite a stodgy and, and frustrating first half. When Kovacic came on in the 43rd minute, he didn't really do anything before half-time, but in... Second half, he just was a wasp at a picnic, wasn't he? He was just absolutely buzzing around everywhere, picking the ball up, driving at people, creating things. Him and William, as you say, running at the defence, creating space for Hudson Odoi to do his thing, uh, creating um, opportunities for Tammy to, to lose his markers. You know, it was really, really good in the second half. And I think a lot of that was down to, to both him and to Pulisic when he came on as well, who, who gave us, uh, you know, even more energy. So, you know, really, really encouraging in particularly that last half an hour of the match. Yeah, I was, was going to get on to Pulisic in a minute. The, the other person that I thought got freed up and was able to really control a lot of the game from deep was Jorginho. Who, yeah, he again, was magnificent. He, he was he, absolutely magnificent. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we are starting to see how good a player Georgie Boy is. Uh, you know, are you a fan of him, Tim? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he's a, he was a slow burner with me. I wasn't convinced some of last season. But this season, no, I think he's been... He, he's, he's, he's stamping himself more and more on games. And, you know, I wasn't sure about Kovacic last season. But as Andy says, you know, he came on and he made a big difference on, on Saturday. And maybe these guys, regardless of who the manager was last year and what system we played, Maybe these guys just needed a year to get used to, to English football. I felt sorry for him last season, Jorginho, because I think he was a lightning rod for supported dissatisfaction with, with the manager and with what was going on generally. But I think this season he's, he's, been, he's been exceptional. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I also think they were just such good players last year in a way because they did what the manager asked them to do. And that sort of counted against them. I think we're seeing their real true capabilities this time round. The, the other person, and you mentioned him a second ago, Andy, who you have to say it was great to see him come on and have meaningful minutes was Pulisic. He, ha- he has had a, a torrid time to his start. Frank has actually been quite public in saying he needs to sort some things out. Then he was away with America this last week, got substituted, ended up in tears. And then he came on and made a hell of a difference as well, didn't he? Well, he got half an hour, which is, you know, more than he's had for a while. You know, he came on at the end of the, uh, the Southampton game and, and created the assist for Batchway. You know, a little bit of magic there. He's clearly got magic in his boots. It was interesting that he came and played down the middle, that he didn't yeah. get immediately shoved out wide. Um, and uh, Frank had obviously, it was a long conversation that Frank had with him before he came on with his arm around his shoulder. And I think a lot of that was just put it all behind you. You know, put it all out of your head. Go out on that football pitch and show them what you can do. And he did. You know, immediately he came on. He started to run at players. He was moving the ball quickly. His touch was good. He, he was getting his head up. He was picking players out. He almost scored, you know, if it weren't for a good save. Uh, he, You know, he was all over the place. And in the half an hour that he came on, he probably, alongside Kovacic, was the biggest impactful player in the game. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And um, I, th- I think what we're seeing from Frank is that, 
he's not afraid of changing things or changing where he decides players will play. I think we're seeing that he's a thinker, isn't he? I, I think as opposed to a tinker, he's a thinker, isn't he, Tim? Yeah, I, I think he is. And I think um, you, you've got to be bold. You've got If it's not working, you've got to make changes. I mean, I think with Pulisic, things to remember is we're only two and a half months into the season. The guy's, what, 20, 21? He's come from a, you know, a different background. He's not played in English football. He hasn't got that experience. It's going to take time. And I think, you know, Frank Lampard is looking now. He's looking at a, a squad that maybe is blossoming more quickly than he thought. But he's not afraid to make changes. But that's what you need. You know, rigidity to a system, regardless of how it's going, and making the same substitutions in the same minutes doesn't strike me as the way to win trophies or, to, you know, to compete at the, at the highest level. Whereas I think more flexibility and more more thought has to be the way forward. And this is why Lampard is so desperately impressive, I think, at the moment. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. And you, you can see what a difference it makes to, to the way... He knows tough love. It's obvious that he does with the way he's talked about Pulisic earlier this season. But he also knows how to bring the best out of him. And, and one of those players would be, be Tammy, who uh, was a little bit unlucky and actually probably got one of the best defensive blocks in on him when he thought he'd scored a, a nice open goal, easy shot. Um, but the crowd love Tammy, don't they, Andy? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that tackle by Yedlin, I mean, that was... Quite something. I mean, you must have had an amazing view of that, Tim, because you were yes. right above it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, on, I'm in the West End, so I didn't. But even I could see where I was. That, And what was interesting is that the final whistle, five or six or seven minutes after the final whistle, Tammy had taken his shirt off and he was walking down towards the, the shed end. And he was still kind of shaking his head and talking to people and, and, and clearly saying, I don't know how he did that. How have I not got a goal there? He was still going on about it afterwards. He'd be desperately unlucky because, I mean, that honestly, what, what a tackle. Yeah, it was. It was It was quite incredible, wasn't it, Tim? It was. I mean, as I say, I think Newcastle will probably get away, won't go down, because they, they, they do seem resolute at the back. And, you know, on another day, Tammy could have had two or three goals. But, you know, we won. He, he's not afraid to miss. He, as long as he keeps his head up and it looks like he does, then the chances will come and it, he'll take enough of them. So, you know, I'm very positive about him. Yeah, I, I'm very positive about the way we stuck at it. I think that's a game last season we could well have drawn and and gone away going, well, they were tough, they were resolute. It was everything Arsenal couldn't do last night against Sheffield United. Oops, I just mentioned it. Well done, Sheffield. Um, so, yeah, coming up this week, we have uh, Ajax away uh, in the Champions League. Now, they're kind of almost um, a blueprint for what we're doing in a, in a weird kind of way. This is a club that has brought through amazing youngsters. Last year's team did incredibly well. I still think they've had quite a few of their best players stripped out and may not be the same team. But um, it's going to be an interesting matchup, isn't it, Andy? Yeah, they're top of the table at the moment after 10 games. They've won eight, drawn two. Um, they're in decent form at the moment. I think the, you know, it's going to be a very difficult game. It's going to be the difficult game in the group, I think. I think we're, we're going into it confident. They're going into it confident. They obviously have home advantage. It's going to be a febrile atmosphere over there. Obviously, we know that they're not allowed to bring any fans to Stamford Bridge um, because of their, you know, previous indiscretions. 
Um, so there's going to be, you know, quite quite an atmosphere, and it's going to be quite intimidating for those young players. It will really, I think, we'll really see what they're made of tomorrow night. Whether they can go out there in in that atmosphere, in that stadium, and put in a result against, you know, what is a very very decent team. And how do you see it, Tim? Are we looking at if we can come away with a draw? That would be absolutely fantastic. Or, or can you see a sneak in it? I mean, I I can see a sneaking it. I think. But a draw, we, we do need to get something out of the game. But if we draw and then we beat them at home, then we're, we're in a strong position again. But obviously the home defeat by Valencia has, has means we've got to get our act together. But I'm, I'm pretty confident we're, we're ahead of where I thought we'd be at this stage of the season. We're not going to win. I don't think anyone expects us to win the Champions League, but it would be very good to go through. So, yeah, if we get a draw tomorrow, then fine. But I, I, I think maybe we can sneak it, but we'll, we'll see. And of course, it's a six o'clock kickoff, which I hadn't realised till just before we came on air. So I've had to rearrange my diary to make sure I can actually watch the game. Yeah, well, that's that's important. I, I don't I don't like these new times of everything. Six o'clock and eight o'clock. Qu- quarter to eight was all right. I mean, when you're going to the games, it's a real nightmare getting back for the last trains. Um, you know, it makes a bit of a difference. But anyway, I, mean, I can we'll understand see. it. I can understand it being six o'clock if it's in some far flung region of Eastern Europe where there's a time difference. Yeah. But it doesn't make any sense, I don't think, when, when you know, it's only a one hour time difference. And everyone's coming back from work. You know, it does. Yeah. It, I, I think I think it's a, the strangest decision. But uh, you're not going, presumably, then, Tim. No, I'm not. No, I, I went to Lille, but I'm not going. But um, it's all done. It's all done for TV. If, TV said they wanted the games at three in the afternoon. Then they'd be at three in the afternoon. So yeah, know, there's a couple. I noticed you were you, you posted all the uh, the revised fixtures. This there's a game at eight fifteen, isn't there? Coming up. Yeah, we've got we got we got a game at seven thirty. The Aston Villa game is at seven thirty, which we haven't played a home game at seven thirty. I don't think since I'm guessing the mid to late eighties, and it was always because people couldn't get there and people had further to travel. TV say it's 7.30 and it's 7.30. Arsenal is 8.15, which is carries that extra half hour means that some people that getting the last train home up north or from Liverpool Street or whatever becomes much more difficult. And it, it's purely for TV. There's no, there's no other logic whatsoever. And I can't believe Chelsea or the police or anybody's particularly happy about this. But it shows mm. where the power lies in football. And it's Does. not with the club. And the Premier League blaming the police and the infrastructure for the six-day delay in the fixtures is rubbish. It's mm. not the police, it's the television companies not being able to agree between themselves as to who had what game when over Christmas. Yeah, I mean, it's a complete mess as well, isn't it? And yep. Amazon are run, running every game live on certain days. Yep. It's, it's, um, it's How quite does that affect you, Kerry? I mean, 8.15 games are a nightmare for you, isn't it? Well, 8 o'clock... As I said, you can just about miss your last train, and and it's really you got to scary. get up to Northamptonshire, haven't you? Well, Leicestershire. So mm. yeah, uh, eight fifteen would mean ooh, if you are lucky, you'll just make the last train. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's really you know it's not thought through, and people don't care. Is the honest you no. know you're talking about forty thousand people. Whereas they're talking about millions at home watching it, so the fan, the fans yet again that go to the ground and create the atmosphere that makes television so wonderful to watch, are not considered. Mm. But um, okay, well, moving on then to the the before we do predictions, uh, then we're back the league Burnley away. That's another nasty old game, isn't it, Tim? 
it is a nasty old game. And, you know, 5.30 kickoff up there, be nice and cold. I'm, I'm going up. You know, it, it's one of those games where you don't quite know what's going to happen because they are very resolute, Burnley, but they're not a brilliant side. And, we, you know, we have won up there in, in, in recent years. And a couple of times we struggled, so it's hard to call. I would hope we've got enough class to beat them, but they, they don't mess about. Their, their strikers don't mess about. So whoever whoever's playing centre-back, and I guess it's going to be Tamori and Zuma, are really going to have to be on their mettle because they don't they really don't mess about Burnley. Yeah, I, I think I think it's going to be one of those. Yeah, you're right. We're going to have to be at the races for that one again. I, I would guess uh, we would think that a draw is not a bad result, but again, we could nick it. So, uh, Andy, how do you see that one? Yeah, I don't suppose you'll be uh, taking the trip up to Burnley. No, I'll be out the country, unfortunately, Ooh. watching it, watching it on on some dodgy stream probably is it on telly i don't know i haven't even looked yes it is oh well i'll be watching i'll be watching it through my vpn visible panty line um i will that's your vpl mate oh vpl right okay um i will uh i, I think it's going to be difficult as tim says you know they are a, they're almost like it's a, it, it sounds like i'm you know just being cheap but i do think they're a bit of a championship side they've got big muscular players they play a big muscular game they get the ball up to the big men up front they thrive on free kicks set pieces uh balls knocked down in the box all things that we struggle with frankly um and concerned about our um defensive uh capabilities against teams like that however i think that they can be properly got at and if callum hudson adoy is on his game and mason's on his game and tammy are on their game and william and the others are all on their game pushing forward we can score more goals from them and that's all that matters Fair enough. I, I think it's it's interesting you mentioned Callum because if ever I was talking to a friend of mine who used to be a footballer and he was saying when when he used to play back in the seventies and the eighties, you rupture your Achilles, it's over. You you don't come back from that. And to see someone like him come back, he did it what in April or something, and here we are in October, and he doesn't look as though he's lost any pace or lost any skill. He looks totally mobile and he looks like everything we thought that he just might possibly be. Got a lot to learn. I think you've got a few points about him, Andy, haven't you? About Callum? Yeah. Yeah. About how he's got a, you know, when he hasn't got the ball. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that positional play off the ball is something that he needs to learn a little bit. He sometimes looks a little bit confused about where he should be and what he should be doing it's not like he's not willing to defend he's not he's not um he's not just a an out and out flair player who won't get stuck in i just think it's something he has to learn at that speed and that tempo of a premier league game he really needs to understand what his role is off the ball but it's not really a criticism it's just saying he's a young player that's some that's one or it will be yeah, I, I I totally agree with you. So, okay, we have now got to uh, well, it's prediction time. So, Tim, would you like to give us your prediction first of all for uh, Ajax? Two-one uh, to Chelsea. Two-one to Chelsea. Okay, fair enough. And for you, Andy? Yeah, I think it's got draw written all over it. I'm going to go one-one. Okay, I'm going to go three-two uh, Chelsea. Blimey. Okay. <laughs> Um, hmm. You put no thought into that whatsoever, did you? 
I do. It's the best way. That's the way to come out with Zen <laughs> scores. You know, it's a Zen state of mind. I mean, it is what the universe is telling me. Um, so, okay, let's find out what the universe is telling me about Burnley away. I'm going to go first because I never go first. I'm going to go for a 1-0 Chelsea win. What about you, uh, Tim? Uh, 3-1 Chelsea. Okay. Andy? Yeah, I think a narrow win. I'm going to go 2-1. Fair enough. Brilliant. Well, that's it. We're, we're out of time. Um, Andy, as always, great to catch up with you. Tim Rolls, what can I say? Lovely to have you on the show. Uh, don't forget, everybody, Stamford Bridge is falling down. It's well worth reading. It's well worth buying. Go and get it on Kindle and as a hardback. Get it in every format whatsoever. And then you can read it on the loo, in the, on a train. It doesn't matter anywhere. Tim, I hope that the book is going to be incredibly successful for you. What I've read so far, it's wonderful. Thank you for joining us, Tim. You're, you're very welcome. And thanks for your kind words. Uh, pleasure. And we'll see you all next week, which will be uh, next Monday. Uh, as opposed to Tuesday. All right, we'll see you soon. This is a Playback Media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at chelseapodcast.net. Sports Social Podcast Network.